Today's guest was the associate director on the Drama Desk award-winning National Folks Bean Theater production of Fiddler on the Roof. But it feels like both yesterday and a lifetime ago that he was helping me embody my Chandler Bing on stage. Today we're taking a ride from good old times to artistic fulfillment. Enjoy. My handle is Jonathan Blade. Welcome to my podcast. So, life, by its very nature, is dynamic. It's about adapting and changing, always moving towards becoming. As we get older, that change slows. It takes major catalysts to evoke noticeable change. My guest today was one of my adult catalysts for change. He was probably my most significant guide to adventures in the expressive arts, teaching me to become more open as a human being. But today... We are here to talk about one of the major adult catalysts for his own personal journey. Please welcome my dear friend, Matthew Didner. Hey, Todd. Matt, Daddy, welcome. So happy to be with you. Hey, it's awesome that you come on the show. So what made you want to talk about this subject, about the change evoked by moving from New York to Richmond and then from Richmond back to New York? Yeah, it's it's interesting that um, throughout one's life, there there's opportunities when things aren't quite working out the way that you're hoping that they would to find reset buttons. And uh, and and I've done that a couple times. One brought me down to Virginia, and one uh, and one brought me back to New York. Both of which turned out to be uh, very positive experiences for for growth, for experiences, for meeting some of the. The, the best people in my life and uh, and for good uh, career moves that kind of you know kept me out of the uh, out of the doldrums so to to recap quickly how did you find yourself coming from New York to Richmond in the first place so I grew up in the New York area and I uh, and I went to college in in New York City at NYU uh, studying theater and when I graduated, I was really drifting in a lot of ways, both personally and, and professionally. One of the really sobering ex- experiences when I first uh, got to school as a freshman, you know, everybody there, you know, sort of has a similar backstory. They they ended up going to to a theater school because they were the, 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 the star of their high school or community theater stage. Um, you know, from their teenage years, and most of us come from pretty small towns and, and suburbs, which made us uh, big fish in in small ponds. And then the very very first day, you're sitting in a room with a couple hundred other eighteen year olds who all had the same experience. And at some point, it kind of dawns on you: this is just one class of one school of all the schools in the city and all the schools in the state and all the schools in the country. And every year, this is the number of people that's going to be graduating out into the world looking for work. And uh, that's an awful lot of competition and you really have to find a, a niche. Um, but if you're too niche, then there's just not enough work for you uh, on those grounds. So finding the balance is really difficult. And so I found myself coming out into the world without any real prospects of theater work. And um, for my day job, my first day job, I was actually working for a few months for NYU in my in my old uh, work study position. They allowed me to to stay on for a while, but it wasn't really very satisfying. And um, so I, I left that after a while, and uh, I got very lazy and. Com- you know, very complacent and um, was was messing up the job and uh, was probably going to get fired if I if I kept it up. So uh, so I ended up quitting and took a job as a as a barista for for a while. And good skill set to have. <laughs> it was it's it's a good it's a very good skill to have. And I met some interesting people. It was in a little kind of boutique espresso bar in the West Village, and so. Uh, some of the people who would pop in were making movies uh, nearby, which was pretty frequent. So there were a couple weeks that uh, RuPaul uh, would come in uh, most every day. Cool. Not not in not in drag, but uh, 
uh, Ron Perlman would come in smoking his cigars, and every day we'd have to remind him that he couldn't smoke his cigars in the store, um, and he never really cared. Um, you know, a few other like I'm the beast, leave me alone. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a few other uh, a few other notables uh, would 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 stop by, and that was kind of cool. But you know, I, I burned out on that after about five or six months, you know, was, uh, I was on the early shift. So I had to open up the store at six 30 in the morning. And after a while, I, uh, didn't enjoy that so much anymore. So I went to work as an office temp and, you know, meanwhile, I was realizing that I was spending most of my time doing work that, um, you know, wasn't ever going to lead to anything professionally that, uh, that I intended to pursue. And, uh, you know, living in the in the in the city when you've got no money, especially, is 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 not a lot of fun. And um, so uh, I decided to uh, to kind of cash in my chips. I think I had about a thousand dollars in savings, and I bought a, a beat up old uh, Chevy. Um, I think you remember that car. Uh, Indeed. And uh, so I, I headed down to uh first to to uh, a place called floyd virginia it's about uh an hour southwest of roanoke where a buddy of mine from college um had ended up his parents um where his father was retired air force he actually didn't grow up there he grew up in in california but his parents brought this old uh horse farm out in, in floyd and so the idea was that we were going to go get jobs for a few months in in Roanoke at this theater called the Mill Mountain Theater. And then uh, we would head out on some kind of cross-country adventure and end up in the, on, in the West Coast and, you know, kind of just see what would happen along the way. We sort of had uh, on-the-road fantasies that we would, you know... <laughs> meet all sorts of interesting people and, you know, living the artist's life. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of find, find all the Bohemians in all the little places and uh, around the country. And then, you know, finally settle. he wanted to go to uh, Oregon uh, Shakespeare theater. And uh, that was, you know, his dream. And I figured I have nothing better to do. So I'm just going to kind of go along. But uh, so we did get jobs for about five months at, at the, at the theater in, in Roanoke. And when it was over in the spray, we were, we were interns. I mean, we were paid interns, but we were paid literally a hundred dollars a week um, and, and given housing in the, uh, in the actor's dorm. And so it, the, there really wasn't an opportunity to save up anything. So we were still broke and when, uh, when our theater contracts were up. So um, we, we went our separate ways. I, at that point met a, met a woman, who had uh, lived in Roanoke and uh, we were living together at that point. And I didn't want to stay in Roanoke, but she felt that New York was too big of a, a switch for her. So we settled on Richmond as a halfway point because it's certainly more urban. And, um, and uh, I had friends uh, as did she who were living there already. So it kind of gave us a, you know, a jump start. So I um, started doing, theater there pretty much right away uh, a woman who I had had uh, grown up with and um uh and gone to high school with was uh at VCU studying modern dance choreography that's that's Ruth uh Feinbloom mm -hmm. and um so we ended up doing a show together pretty much as soon as I moved there in the in the summer of uh 96 and it went well, you know, it, it, one of the wonderful things about Richmond, I, I don't know what it's like, what the art scene is like at the moment, but back then there was so much empty space and uh, people were really just, you know, willing to to help you out. So the first show we did was at the Shacklebottom Arts Center in the old um, Lucky Strike Tobacco Factory. And yeah. they just, you know, more or less gave us the space. I mean, we may have paid them a, a nominal like 100 bucks or something but we did our first show there and most of the cast were either current or or recent VCU graduates and that's where uh, the Richmond Performing Arts Collective came from and good old RPAC yeah and we just just you know with this idea that any artist can come to us with a project and you know things that otherwise wouldn't have any kind of commercial potential modern dance and, and experimental theater and, and things like that. And it was just, you know, an, an all DIY and nobody ever really got paid. I think, you know, we used to pay a 
you know, just to like 20 bucks or something just to, you know, mm-hmm. kind of show whatever appreciation we could. Um, we never, you know, made anything, certainly, you know, put our put our own money into it mostly. And uh, it was really kind of a great incubator. I mean, you know, uh, if I had stayed in New York, those opportunities wouldn't have been there. It's just too hard to get work produced here. And there's there's too much pressure to everybody needs to get paid. It's hard to even just, you know, you don't think about things like it's hard to keep a car in New York. Mostly, most of the people who live here don't have a car. How do you move stuff around when you need uh, props and, you know, set pieces and mm-hmm. things like that? So Richmond was just the place. And and art galleries just seemed to be a, a, a good fit for us. We went from the Shaco Bottom Art Center to um, Art Space on Broad and found yeah. and found some other fascinating little spots along the way, like that loft that uh, Grady lived in. Uh, yeah, Grady's loft. In an old... Uh, naked Bee loft. Yeah, Naked Bee Guy show in the old uh, <laughs> furniture warehouse. It was factory outlet or something. I don't remember what it was, but uh, fascinating space. And um, yeah, it was just an easy place to live. And I had a crappy day job <laughs> at the bank that that paid me barely a living wage, but um, but it was okay. I was able to keep an apartment and do what I do. And then of course, uh, when we, uh, I guess our packs third or fourth season no it must have been third season we were in 98 when we did uh the three sisters and my life was falling apart personal life and everyone else it seems in the cast everyone's personal life was falling apart while we did the three sisters uh because we, we formed what we called the personal upheaval club because uh, a number of us had been going through breakthroughs and uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, breakups and, and divorces and such, and such. And so we became very close with one another. Uh, and Ray was in that show, of course, Ray Bullock and, and, and Betsy uh, Heckman. And it was from that show, uh, Ray Bullock, who, um, uh, who would go on to found the 955 Club with Betsy Heckman, uh, start, was doing stand-up comedy uh, open mic at uh, Chetty's Cow and Clam, and we would go to watch. And uh, after a while, a few of us, uh, Betsy Heckman and, and, and Chris Harkham and, and myself, uh, decided to you know kind of give it a shot. So Chetty's, the deal was you'd get a free beer if you did stand-up. So that was our first form of uh, professional payment. Uh, so the 955 Club formed really kind of out of that experience. And then we moved to Sticks, And I believe that's where I met you. I came on in the Sticks era, which is now a very enjoyable little um, Southeast Asian restaurant. But yeah, very nice. it was, yeah, I believe... October of 99 or it might have been November of 99. Yeah, it was it was definitely it was a good era and, uh, and it quickly paved the way for the few years that we were at at Chuggers on a regular basis. And it was it was yeah, it was an era of adventure. Yeah, it was a great scene and again it was something that if I had stayed in New York it really wouldn't have happened. There are a lot of open mics here but it's hard for them to lead anywhere and it's very hard to you know, to get your time in uh, as a stand-up and especially to try to uh, develop a career from the ground up. But in Richmond, it's kind of seemed effortless in in a way. We just had to create the material. The audiences, you know, were there and uh, and we got paid to to get up there and, and tell jokes. Now, Richmond was a great comedy it town. It really, really was. And we had, a, we had a nice, welcoming comedy scene. Yeah. There were paid gigs that were around us, which, yeah, as you just stated, is not something that you can find in a lot of, of spaces. Yeah. And and Hoop, yeah. a, a good veteran uh, comic who is Richmond-based, but mostly uh, a touring comic, would uh, take us under his wing, and we'd meet in his little studio in, in Chaco Bottom and uh, have our, 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 our weekly uh, training sessions. I guess that's, you know, Nancy. And bring us into the bigger That's picture right. of the comedy yeah. world. And, uh, yeah, who gave us an invaluable experience. He, he sure did. So so for the listeners, basically he had this like garage that he had converted into a studio of sorts in Shaco Bottom. And we would meet there. Was it Sunday nights? I don't remember what night it was. Something like and, that. And he would basically just put us through our paces. Like, you know, we'd have to, he'd like, you know, make us get up there and just talk um and if we said um uh or you know he 
penalized us by adding, I think it was like 20 seconds or something. They'd like just shout out topics and we'd have to respond as they were as they were shouting out to us. And, the, and there were some real, uh, real characters who would show up to these things. Uh, uh, Kenny, Roger, Roger, Paul Roger Paul Hamus, the, uh, the, the nudist who uh, <laughs> I don't think I would ever want to see nude <laughs> or his friends. This this was a, an an older gentleman, folks. He was an old old Southern man. And, he yeah, he yes, and, he and never. just made all sorts of inappropriate uh, comments uh, all as, the time. As old old Southern men. Are yeah, uh, and then there was Kenny. Well, he's a truck driver or something. I don't remember, but he was always uh, and he, like would, he always had a gun <laughs> tucked in the back of his his <laughs> waistband, and I mean it was you know it was it was a, they were interesting times. Who was the uh, who was the Greg Kinnear? Guy? Oh right, oh boy, I can't remember his name. He was real polished though. He was the the props guy, right? Yeah. Oh, it'll. Yeah, he was. He was like he was like hoop light. Yeah, probably. yeah. Hoop for those who don't know, Gregory Hooper. He uh, his his bit was um, was karaoke parodies, and uh, he was a real master they of the were... game. He he. <laughs> they they were it was comedy for it, the it really was it was. It was... It was for the yeah, people. Yeah, uh, but but he had a way of controlling an audience in a way that I've never seen before, really, or since. Where he would he uh, uh, so I remember this time we were we did a gig with him. What was that sports bar that had the had the uh, had the the rooftop bar? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I know what it is, and I can't. Rec- I think it's something else now. It's it's been like two or three different things uh, since those days. So it's like Beauregard's or something now. So we had a yeah. We I, used I to have a comedy about. night there, on the, up on the roof uh, for for a few months, uh, in addition to Chuggers. But but this one night it was you and you and me and Ray and 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 Hoop, and we weren't outside. We were downstairs and. There was like nobody in the audience except for like these, I don't know, maybe like five people, and three of them were uh, army rangers in training, and it was like their first weekend pass, and the last thing on earth they wanted was to hear stand up. They were, you know, they were there looking to get laid, so they were just talking all throughout, uh, and 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 uh, I don't remember which one of us, one of us had the the, the real unfortunate uh, position of of opening, and they were just talking straight through our set. But Hoop was a headliner, and when he got up there, he chose the biggest badass among the, these three guys, pulled him up on stage, put some crazy wig, we'll yeah, hat or wig or something on him, <laughs> and just pulled him into the act. And from that moment on, these guys were just eating out of the palm of his hand. That it really was a it was a it was a great education, and then of course he t- I, I never went on the road with him because I couldn't leave my my job for very long. But I remember you, but you went out with him for a while, right? Yeah, we did a couple weeks in the southwest. Yeah. It was uh, it was quite an experience. I did a show with him at a, a casino where it was depressing. The audience was I don't even know why. I think the show was free if you gambled away your rent money or something. <laughs> And so the audience was just broken. It was full of broken people. And and my stand-up was nothing that they wanted to hear. Like, you know, I, I didn't have uplifting stand-up. <laughs> and they hated me. They hated me so much. So the audience was lost before the show started. I lost them even more. And I couldn't imagine that anyone would be able to bring that audience back in. And it took them a while. It took them maybe half of a set. But oops actually got that audience engaged and brought them in. And it was kind of amazing. So to watch the man perform, like I respected Hoop as an artist. I didn't enjoy his comedy specifically, but what he could do on stage, the way he could bring in people and the way that he could relate to almost any group of people was amazing. Yeah. Like in an eight. Yeah. Years. He brought me on, on some gig to, Somewhere in the western part of the state, I don't remember what, what really, really, really rural, where I actually got hissed. <laughs> <laughs> he he did great though. But my memory of that gig was before, it was like a, a, a one half of the building was a bar, and the other half of the building was like a like a cafeteria style restaurant. 
And uh, so uh, the the owner of the place uh, fed us before, and I just went to the you know it's kind of like a buffet bar, like a it, like a Golden Corral or something, but it wasn't a chain place. And I didn't really like register the fact that Hoop wasn't eating, but I you know I got a plate. And the owner comes down and sits with us. He and Hoop obviously go back a ways. And, and Hoop's like, oh, how's it going? And he's like, oh, man, I can't believe the, the guy I was referring to. He, I guess he owned another restaurant like this somewhere nearby. He's like, yeah, ever since the health department shut down my other place. <laughs> like, my, fork, my fork just drops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Uh, and then, of course, Hoop took us on adventures to um, Grins. Yeah, to do cable access TV in in yeah. Maryland, uh, which was an important part of the experience. Yeah, you were too. watching, you know, Channel 147 at uh, three in the morning on a Wednesday. You might have caught us. Yeah, but it was Channel 147 <laughs> like everywhere. So, you know, whether you could be in Los <laughs> Angeles watching Channel 147, and you could still see uh, one of us on Grand right, right, with a... So that was all like a, a really sweet part of the experience. It was. It really was. So that that is like one leg of your Batman-like growth yeah. as an artist. But as far as the directing leg, it was really awesome to see you grow in real time as we did of all of these various shows and, and experiments. Uh, which which one of the, the RPAC productions do you uh, personally think of as this is my magnum opus from this period of time? Uh, probably Friends. We did a show called Last Week's Friends Geek Juxtaposition, and it came out of this conversation. It actually came out of a conversation I was having with Harry Kolatz Jr. We were talking about wanting to do a, a festival that never materialized, and the, the concept was that anybody could kind of do anything. We said, it, it, and I said, you know, for example, if you want to stage last whatever episode of Friends they showed on TV last week, yeah, go for it. And then it kind of dawned on me, like, well, why don't we do that? For a while, I was thinking that we would just like make transcripts of every single episode as it came up and just do our own <laughs> DIY version of Friends. <laughs> uh, that didn't unfortunately seem too practical. So we we then kind of morphed it into this idea of like, well, let's like fill in what's missing because you know the thing with 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 the phenomenon. I mean, people have to remember back in the late '90s how how uh, popular. Friends was this was you know before the era of of Netflix and and streaming so people watched what was what they showed on TV it was a very remarkable era so Friends on the one hand it totally encapsulated the Gen X experience in a way that nothing else had um, but on the other hand well I mean the this is usness of it is why is, I think I feel like that is one of the biggest reasons to do it because this is us. This is this. We were living this eclectic single folks. Right. Your job's uh, a joke. You're broke. You know, your love uh, life's DOA. And that's, and that was kind of all, all of us. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, we were all kind of floundering, but you know, okay, so let's take it. And realizing of course, that it's also at the same time, it's a commercial product of Hollywood. It's, it's a very pat look at, and a very white look at um, fairly, you know, privileged group of people, even even those who are, you know, the characters who are always the, the broke ones still were, were living in a really great apartment in New York, you know, and really kind of living the life. So, uh, so we intercut, we said, well, where the commercials would go, let's like come up with our own expressions of like, what's wrong with us? What makes each and every one of us a geek, right? These were what we called our geek statements. And so it, it kind of went back and forth between the episode of Friends where um, where Chandler proposes to Monica. And as it turns out, it, it really was the episode that they aired the week before we did the show. Um, it was a, a rerun, but it was, uh, but still I found the script, you know, someone posted a script on the internet. So, you know, great place to start. Yeah, and we really had a, a great time with that. And and out of that, you know, that's where another leg of our comedy journey took us to with um with the sketch comedy shows we did. Yeah, which were a big ball of fun and a, a nice way for a, a bunch of different people to showcase Absolutely. their Absolutely. But I have to point out the first one, tell tell our listeners about Tandiway's dream. Uh <laughs> because you uh didn't come to the first meeting. 
and said that you would be, you would be okay writing, but you didn't want to be in the show. So we made the decision for you that you are actually going to be in each and every sketch, but have no, but have no lines whatsoever. <laughs> so we set up the construct that it was all something that was all the product of your dream. So that's how it's the show started. You sat down and fell asleep. <laughs> that was a fun line. Have, it was, it a, was a great show, line. but, but the, but, but it was the second one. It was the super terrific, happy comedy hour that brought us the uh, sexy dentist sketch, which will <laughs> 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 get a real taste out of mine. You played Tiger Woods and I played Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> Those were all those were all excellent really times, were. and like I said, a showcase for everybody's creativity. We all got to to grow a little bit in that creative process all around. We actually did some some very challenging and daring things on stage and uh, at the, the the forefront of pushing people to those and beyond those boundaries. Was one That's true. Um, but my personal life was still stalled out. <laughs> so whereas it had fall, all fallen apart around the time of Three Sisters, it just kind of stayed down in that point. So my love life was going nowhere. My job situation was going nowhere. So I was plotting my, my escape because I felt like even though artistically it was an incredibly uh, fertile uh, and productive period, the problem is that we were there. It's not a it's not a glass ceiling in Richmond. It's it's like a lead ceiling, and it's only three feet off the ground because there's just not a lot of in the professional world. There's just not a lot of opportunity. You know, if you're a if you're an artist hobbyist or if you're an artist uh, an aspirational artist, it's a great place to be. Um, if you are looking to make a living at being an artist, it's not such a great place to be. Um, there's just not a lot of uh, not a lot of opportunities for certainly for paid work. Um, and there's sort of a very small group of people who kind of had a, had a lock on that. Yeah, for, for people not in the know, uh, Richmond itself, Richmond is kind of an artist enclave, but the population itself is not big enough to support vast numbers of, of artists working at that professional yeah. level. So, um, you know, we got some paid gigs. I'd, I'd uh, go in as an understudy in murder mystery dinner theater sometimes where, uh, and you did, did you do that as well? Uh, I did do murder mystery maybe once or yeah, twice. Yeah, basically the way it works is you have to bust tables um, and then you do about five minutes worth of a show in between courses. You get, I think, I don't know, they paid like 60 bucks plus, you, you know, you split the tips. And so you might end up with, you know, 90 bucks in your pocket at the end of the day. And, you know, that's it's okay. It was it was fun. I, I would sub in maybe once a month or, or so as a quick study. So they basically say on Friday afternoon, they tell me that they needed someone the following night and they'd, you know, get a script over to me and I'd have to learn it in about a day. And I got about half an hour worth of rehearsal. Uh, and then, you know, and then you go on and you just, and half of it, you're, you're really sort of winging anyway. So uh, it's really just about having fun. And, and the, the, the folks who were doing it were, had been doing it together for a very long time and were seasoned yeah, they were seasoned pros at it. So you just kind of went along with them. They, what we, you know, in terms of like, you have no idea where you're supposed to be at any given moment. And they do what's what we call in the business, shove with love, <laughs> kind of put somebody, <laughs> put their hand on your shoulder and you just walk whatever direction they're going in and wherever they are, that's where you're supposed to be. And we do that in the, in the, in the big time here in New York too. And anyway, I wasn't breaking through the kind of work we were doing was too non-mainstream for uh too fringe i guess fringe is the right word for any of the big publications richmond times dispatch never once reviewed any of our work um roy proctor would come and see most of the things we did but then he wouldn't write or he wouldn't publish a review of it uh he said that it was uh uh it was for our benefit because that you know he would he would have you know killed it it would not that it would have made a difference because the same you know 30 people that came to see a show of ours would have would have come anyway not our fault. Yeah, we never got it. I mean, style would would <laughs> would cover us sometimes, and it's fine. I mean, not everything we did was 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 so terribly brilliant. It made a, you know we enjoyed it, and and our you know niche of people enjoyed it, but it wouldn't have been something that the average Richmonder probably would have enjoyed very much had they come to see. So That's you know, there was true. just nowhere nowhere professionally to go. You know, I thought at first I would 
you know, grad school, that's a great way out. So I started applying to grad schools. Um, I applied to Yale and Columbia, which wouldn't even give me an interview, uh, and Cal Arts, which was headed by uh, the, the directing department was headed by a former teacher of mine from NYU, but they only take two students a year. So uh, I applied and I got, I was number three, I got waitlisted and, uh, and then I applied again and I got waitlisted again. So I just kind of decided that was that. I would just take my chances in coming back to New York. So Betsy Heckman, who had, uh, who was one of the 955 founders and had done a, a number of shows with us in RPAC, she also kind of wanted to try her hand at New York. So in uh, 2002, we moved to Brooklyn. In many ways, the transition was a big step backwards. It was actually, uh, the, that first year especially was was quite hard. So fun. my brother, uh, Jason, uh, who, who you interviewed previously, um, was uh, doing quite well and uh, his day job was IT education. So he would go into a corporate trainer. So they would bring him into all sorts of you know businesses and institutions. And he would uh, go and teach uh, courses mostly on Microsoft Office. And I was pretty good at Microsoft Office for my job. Uh, I still had a lot to learn, but uh, you know I, I knew enough that I could kind of stay a lesson ahead. And um, and I had no problem standing up and talking to a group of people for six hours at a clip. So, uh, so I tried my hand at that and I did pretty well, you know, it was freelance work just a, a few days a week. So it didn't prohibit me from doing, you know, pursuing at that point, I thought stand up comedy was sort of my best, my best bet. So, uh, Betsy and I would, uh, go to, uh, we had a local, um, bar with a open mic night. And so, you know, we can kind of keep in practice while trying to uh, get a, a good reel together. After doing that for a few months, I started getting gigs at the Gotham Comedy Club, which, you know, seemed pretty big time. Yeah. But how'd that feel? How'd that feel transitioning as in, in the stand up portion of it? How did it feel transitioning from basically a bumpkin comic to uh, the big time? Uh, did you feel like you, you were bringing, I don't know, applicable skills? Did you feel like you were ready for what yeah, you Yeah, uh, I mean, I did. Because, you know, one of the things about my time in, in Richmond was I built up, a, you know, quite a good body of, of material. So I had a lot of sets in me. The, the thing, though, is that the business is just so horrible here in New York. And uh, it turned me off pretty quickly. So it felt great to get in front of a New York audience. I, the sets were always pretty solid. but I was in what they call, you had to do what, what we call bringer sets, which means that in order to get your time on stage, you had to bring a certain number of people to pay the cover mm -hmm. and the two drink minimum. And depending on what, uh, you know, what night it is, you have to bring in five people, seven people, 10 people, et cetera. Um, there's definitely a hierarchy to it. The more you're, the more you do these things and the more money you bring into the club, the better times uh, spot they give you, but they don't pay you. It doesn't really matter how many people you could bring in 30 people and they still wouldn't, you know, kick you back five bucks or anything like that. You were pretty limited. They, you know, these were like seven minute time slots or 10 minute time slots. And they're very serious. When they give you that light, you better wrap it up and, and, and get off stage because uh, if you don't, then you won't, you know, you'll, you'll get tossed out. Cause there's, a, there's more than enough people who are applying for these even for the bringer spots, there's people who get turned down for bringer spots if they're if they're not it, it, you know if they don't have have the material. But not everybody is of a very uh, high level. And one of the problems is that you know the reason why there's these like seven minute spots or ten minute spots is because they just they'll pack in twenty comics in a like a you know in a in a two hour period. You can imagine what it feels like to be you know number seventeen or eighteen in this you know comedy. Yeah, I think did. we did that. In DC. Yeah, it's really, you know, it, it's tough because, you know, you have to imagine somewhere along the way, somebody is doing material that is close enough in theme to yours that the audience has kind of already heard it if you get a if you get a late spot. So uh, I did, you know, about half a dozen or so of those gigs. And then the reward that they give you if you do enough of them is they'll give you every once in a while, they'll throw you a spot where you don't have to bring anybody. So, you know, you're supposed to be very grateful for that. 
I think the last one I did was uh, this was really bizarre. I was literally just about to go on. The guy before me was winding his set down, and in walks Mark McEwen, the weatherman from I think from CBS at the time. I don't know. I don't know if he's even still around. And he talks to the manager, like just, you know, says hello and, you know, blah, blah, blah. They have a little conversation. Manager walks over to me and says, we're going to put Mr. McEwen on before you. And I said, okay. And thinking to myself, what is this guy going to do? Is he going to tell weather jokes for the next 20 minutes? And that's exactly what happened. He told weather jokes for 20 minutes, completely lost the audience. Following that was just a nightmare. You know, it just occurred to me that I really wasn't going to get anywhere in, in this business. There's there's people who are more willing to to uh, to put up with with a lot more nonsense and were more patient and more ambitious than I was. And uh, and it just uh, in that moment occurred to me that it really wasn't a, a path that I wanted to pursue. But fortunately, you know, in terms of finding that, I found that reset button. All you know, with a, a couple of months before that, and um, and that was in uh, in my cur- current career at the uh, at the Yiddish theater. Um, I was literally walking down the the street in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I saw a flyer on a lamppost for um, a, a, a free one-hour introductory Yiddish class nearby. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. And so I, I went to this one-hour introductory class. I had a really great time. The teacher was so incredibly enthusiastic, and he was a young guy. And, and so I took the bait and signed up for more classes. I ended up taking a summer intensive uh, at uh, at Columbia of all places, and um, where I couldn't even get an interview for the directing program. But I did do the the summer intensive Yiddish program, and I found out that there was still a uh, a professional Yiddish theater in uh, in operation in New York, and I uh, began as a volunteer there. I'm going to back up a little bit as to like why you know Yiddish theater would resonate with me. Uh, I didn't grow up speaking the language. Uh, my grandparents spoke it. They did not teach it to my parents. It was the the secret language when they wanted to you know argue, you know, talk about things that they didn't want the children to understand. Um, but but I sort of had a sense of it. Um, my uh, grandparents lived in um, on the east side of uh, of New York uh, in Manhattan when I was a kid, and I spent a lot of my weekends with them. And we used to go to um, the the Second Avenue Deli practically every Sunday. It's you know an old old school Jewish deli, and um, Second Avenue had been historically they they called it the Yiddish uh, Broadway. So in uh, Lower Manhattan, there were once upon a time there were like twenty theaters along that that stretch of Second uh, Avenue uh, between Houston Street and 14th Street. They were all gone by the time I was a kid, but the Second Avenue Deli was sort of a, had a memorial to them. They uh, eventually, they built uh, the, the, the Yiddish Theater Walk of Fame on the sidewalk out front with stars like, you know, Hollywood. But but when I was a kid, they had what they called the Molly Pecan Room. Molly Pecan was a big star of the Yiddish Theater. So they had a room off to the, the side of the main dining room, which had a lot of Yiddish Theater posters and things like that. So I was aware of the history that it had been a thing. And then when I was a teenager, my grandmother took me to see a show called The Golden Land, which was a, an English Yiddish, you know, bilingual musical review about uh, Jewish immigration to to New York in the early part of the 20th century. And you know, that was one of those experiences that kind of stuck with me that I knew it was you know part of my family's history. And uh, she, you know, gave me a when I was a little older, she gave me a um, uh, a record of uh, you know an, a, a, an LP of Yiddish folk song sung by this guy named Theo Bikel, who I knew because he was in uh, he was an actor as well. He was actually on Broadway. He was the original Captain Von Trapp in, in uh, the, the Sound of Music, not Gone with the Wind, The Sound of Music, and and uh, but I knew him because he had been in a Frank Zappa movie called Two Hundred Motels. When I was in high school, I was really into Frank Zappa. So I'm like, oh, I know that guy. So I listened to the album. And again, it really kind of you know resonated with me. And when I was in college, I came across some Yiddish scripts in English translation. And I liked the plays. The, the translations were non-actable. The, the, the quality of the English was 
was not so great. But um, what were the uh, the nature of the shows? Were they if they were older plays, were they like morality plays or what? Um, uh, comedies? What no, uh, the first play I ever came across was a one act of a, a, about a, a family hiding in a basement during a pogrom in in Russia. They had a phonograph player with them, which one of the characters wanted to listen to music and there was a big fight about, you know, if they played the music, it would give up their location. It was, you know, pretty intense. And then, oddly enough, in Richmond, at, it, it was a few years later, we, would been re- we had been rehearsing for one show at, at VCU. We got, uh, they gave us free rehearsal space there and in the theater building and somebody had put out a box of, you know, free books. And one of them was uh, called Three great Jewish plays. Uh, they were Yiddish plays in translation. One of them was the very famous play called The Dybbuk, which is about uh, a, like a possession, a, a spirit who possesses a young girl and there's a, an exorcism scene. It's it's actually just hit its 100th anniversary this year. It's one of the most, most famous works. And then another play called God of Vengeance, which uh, is set in a brothel and has a, a lesbian love scene, one of the earliest in, in history and uh, when it was performed and there was a whole uh, Broadway play about it called Indecent uh, about the production. I, I think it was in the 19-teens or 20s. And uh, when they performed it in English translation on Broadway, the lesbian love scene was considered to be um, uh, indecent. Uh, and the whole company was actually arrested uh, and tried for, indec- for public indecency for doing the play. But the one that really got to me was a play called The Golem. Uh, about there's this mythological creature made of clay who's brought to life to protect the Jewish population of Prague uh, against um, against a, a pogrom, and uh, and then it. There's a famous yes. pilot film about. Yeah, this one's a little bit more intense, though. It brings it to it's by a, a, an author, my favorite author named H. Lavik. It, it brings it to a much more spiritual kind of messianic place, and uh, I could I could do a whole episode just just talking about that play, which I never really could access enough to do anything with until like two years ago when we did a reading of it. But that's like my life's you know ambition is to is to is to do that play. Yeah. And that was really kind of the work that like, kind of like sat with me. And so, you know, when I say, well, why do, why was I drawn to Yiddish theater? It was more than anything. It was that, that particular play. But of course it opened up a whole new world to me. When I volunteered for that first event, that guy, Theo Bikel, who was in the the Frank Zappa movie and who's my grandmother gave me his album. He was in the show. Uh, I I first volunteered for a a gala in uh, 2000. Alan King, the, you know, the great stand-up comic, um, uh, was the... Uh, that's uh, Hello Mother, Hello Mother. Uh, no, Father. that's Alan Sherman. That, yeah, Alan King was, uh, a, was a sta- like an old Borscht Belt stand-up comic. But, but, you know, sort of a legend in the industry. I don't think he was the MC that night. He did, you know, maybe did just like a five-minute appearance. But, I mean, it was like, wow. I mean, like, here's these, like, you know, these legends who are here. And so... The artistic director, Zalman Malantek, was talking from the stage about the need to reach communities outside of New York City and to reach younger people. And that's when the light bulb went off that everything I had done up until that moment was all DIY, light, portable, easy stuff. And that if that was just a question Mm -hmm. of taking that experience that I had gained in Richmond and now putting it together here. And so we put together sketch comedy shows. We basically just found like really great Yiddish comedy routines and theater songs and things like that. And we we started hitting the road. I put together a company of six young performers. For me, it was a chance to get my comedy on. And it was, you know, it was a pretty big hit. And things just sort of on a parallel track, things were just, you know, kind of on an upward trend with the company as well. Yiddish was you know kind of coming out from the from being this like really niche thing which at that point was mostly attended by like 80 and 90 year olds a lot of you know holocaust survivors and you know people who still spoke yiddish it was really kind of on a growth trend because we started instituting english translation um super titles so that people who didn't speak the language could could access the shows 
uh, the company would have been founded in 1915, but for most of that time, it was not a professional company. It was uh, it's it was amateur at first, and then it became what they called semi-professional, where they'd hire like lead actors who were professionals and you know directors. But most of the company were not. Um, but there was a big change in the late 90s in the management, and the and the company was transitioning to full professional. So I was volunteering there for the first six months or so in between doing my my tech uh, teaching jobs. And uh, so I would just go into the office on my days off and I was helping write for grants and, you know, kind of dreaming of this, you know, touring program. And um, after about six months of doing that, a staff position opened up. And uh, and so they hired me on to do that. So now I was actually, for the first time in my life, I was working uh, on a regular basis, getting paid doing what I always wanted to do. We developed a relationship with City University of New York, and we would bring shows around, and that was sort of our, our incubator to develop new projects, and we would do readings and concerts and all sorts of things, and some of them would end up moving up to off-Broadway fully staged productions. And after a few years of doing that, they, uh, they would allow me to, uh, to direct shows. So one thing just sort of, you know, led to another. I would, you know, do one show based on how that went. They'd give me another show. The shows were getting pretty good reviews. I mean, I couldn't get my work reviewed in the Richmond Times Dispatch, but here I was getting reviewed in the New York Times. It felt great. Felt good, huh? And they were, you know, they were, most of them were, were good reviews. I got, you know, one show got completely panned in the Times. That didn't feel so great. Um, I, oddly enough, the best show that I did, um, but the Times didn't like it. But uh, from one of these, I ended up getting asked to uh, direct a show by Fivish Finkel, um, who, uh, if you go back to, to the 90s, if any of you used to watch uh, Picket Fences or uh, Boston Public, he won uh, the Emmy Award for uh, playing the, one of the lawyers together with Ray Walston on uh, Picket Fences. Uh, and uh, on Boston Legal, he was the old Jewish teacher who was always saying inappropriate things <laughs> as old people are wont to do uh, but he he was a you know he had started his most of his career he was a, a yiddish theater performer he asked me to direct his show uh, he was 88 years old so we did the, the, you know this sort of three-hander show with a couple of his buddies one of whom was actually on friends who played uh, uh, her name is june gable who played uh, joey's agent so if you remember the scene where the agent is eating the sandwich while smoking the cigarette that's june gable <laughs> and she was fantastic so i so i'm starting to work with all of these people who are you know kind of like legendary to me anyway and that show got nominated for a Drama Desk Award for uh, Outstanding Musical Review. So that was, you know, a pretty big career high. Things just kind of went up and up from there. And uh, the big uh, story, of course, is a couple of years ago, we did Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. And I could do a whole show just talking about that as well. But that was directed by the legendary Joel Gray. For those of you who, are, who, who don't know who Joel Gray is, uh, he won the, the Oscar and the, uh, the Tony for his portrayal as the MC in um, Cabaret. But he's done a lot of works since then as well. Mm -hmm. uh, his daughter is Jennifer Gray, who most of you I'm sure know from uh, Dirty Dancing and uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, and I was the I got to be the associate director on that one, and that was an enormous hit, biggest hit we've ever had. Brought in a lot of uh, glitterati to to see the show, and uh, that also won the the that that didn't just get nominated. That one actually won the Drama Desk Award. Uh, the Drama Desk Award is basically the the highest award that an off Broadway show can get. Tony is for uh, Broadway only, but um, and there's other awards like Lucille Lortel that are only for off Broadway. But the Drama Desk Award actually pits uh, Broadway shows against off-Broadway shows. So you can imagine most of the time we're the bridesmaid. We get nominated, but we're nominated against huge shows with, you know, that have a, that have a weekly budget that's higher than our entire production budget. So not only do they have, you know, celebrity names attached to them, but you're, you know, you know, a, a $10 million production when you see it versus a, a $200,000 production. You can't get tickets to the $10 right. million production. Um, <laughs> Was this your moment, like the moment at which you said to yourself, man, this is incredible. I am living my passion. Or did that moment um, come before that? No, I mean, it, it's sort of like riding the wave up. 
so there, there's not necessarily one defining moment per se. They they come in, you know, there's there's moments that you look around you and you're like, wow, <laughs> this is exactly what I've always wanted to do. But there's a lot of those moments. And, and there's times that you think that you've kind of like, you know, you've hit where you want to go. And then the next moment you're higher than that. And I also, you know, I would be I would be negligent if I didn't mention the fact that the personal life also that reset button of moving back to New York also, you know, jump started that. So of course I met my my wife Danielle in 2004 and we got married a couple of years later and then the kids came along. So, you know, everything that I felt I was I was lacking during, you know, I I needed that time in 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 Virginia as that incubator. It got me away from the 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 feeling of really being adrift after finishing school and and then from there the reset button of, of moving back to new york in 2002 you know that sort of brought me all not only not only career wise and i have to be just you know incredibly grateful for for all of this but you know but to have a family now and have the 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 career that i wanted it was just would have predicted but it was just the 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 pure luck of being in the right place at the at the right time and t- and taking the right risks. Definitely. So, uh, we are men of a certain age. Do you leverage your accolade aggressively in moving forward, or you do you move forward organically to accomplish artistically? Well, that's sort of one of the things. It's one of those experiences that you certainly put in the bank for a while because you have made some significant uh, relationships in the course of uh, of the show in terms of the you know the talent and the artists that you're working with. This particular show of Fiddler moved uptown, so actually, uh, so my company, the National Yiddish Theater Folkspina, ceased to be the, after about six months the the producing organization. And when the show moved uptown, it was a commercial production. So now I've got that relationship with the commercial producers, and you know who knows whether they'll have anything to come my way at some point in the future. Um, but certainly, the you know I maintain ongoing relationships with with the with the actors who came on board, and will continue to work with them for as long as they're happy to work with us. Um, as far as leveraging it within my own company, that's, you know, not really exactly possible. We'll leverage it in terms of the audience that we built up will help strengthen our company. And as our company moves forward, we'll continue to, uh, you know, we, we will still remain the company that created the hit show, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, which will, which will give us cachet. Um, I still direct shows, of course, with him. I'm the art- associate artistic uh, director of the company, and who knows what my future there holds. I've been there for 17 years. So, I mean, I think it's, no, I think Not at this point, it's fair to say that this is my career. And we'll just keep making, you know, bigger and better shows and, and hoping that uh, that we will have those opportunities as we, you know, that perhaps shows that would not have been accessible to us. We wouldn't have necessarily gotten the rights to before because people wouldn't have been interested in our company producing them. Now they are. So uh, I'm not directing it, but I can tell you that one of the shows, which unfortunately got put off this year due to COVID, but um, but will be rescheduled in the future, is a, a musical written by Barry Manilow. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. uh, called Harmony, about uh, a singing group. It was a real uh, singing group uh, that was as big as the Beatles in pre-war Germany it was uh, made they were called the comedian harmonists they actually did did, uh, did comedy songs they toured the world they sold out Carnegie Hall on the US tour they made over a dozen movies had hundreds of, of recordings out there but you've never heard of them because three it was six guys three of which were Jewish and three were not. And of course, when the um, when the fascist regime took hold in Germany, the the group was banned. And along with the book burnings, they also destroyed all the prints of their movies and uh, and all their records. Some of them survived, but you can see some clips on YouTube. Anyway, so Barry Manilow wrote a musical about these guys, and uh, we'll be producing that. And that's sort of a big deal. That's with an eye toward a Broadway transfer. I'm not artistically direct, you know, directly involved in that production. But, you know, it's it's still uh, I, I still am on the production side of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, you you are part of the greater entity that is the, yeah. the folks buying theaters. So. so so 
their accolades are still connected Absolutely. to one so, man. So, you know, the, the tide continues to, to rise. And, uh, you know, success sort of builds on success. And uh, I guess that's the that's the, the, the great lesson. And sometimes those successes are not your personal successes, but um, but you take them when you can get them. So modern adult, fully adult, fully responsible, uh, fully realized. Matthew, are you one? Are you happy with where your life has taken you? in all aspects of it, but two, could the Matt of year 2000 have foreseen, do you think? Uh, uh, yes, I, I am happy. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're <laughs> on a daily basis. You just walk around grinning all day. You still get uh, the same frustrations. But uh, but when you stop and Definitely. take stock, yes, uh, I, I couldn't imagine uh, being in this place 20 years ago. It's far, far and above where where I had imagined. Well, I got to tell you, I, for one, am very happy for your success. But uh, yes, this has been a pleasure, Matt. Uh, before we get out of here, do you have anything that you would like to directly plug? Uh, resources for folks? Fine, sure. Resources for uh, well, what I've been doing mostly during the uh, the COVID uh, shutdown because we've all been working remotely. Uh, I haven't actually been in my office since uh, since March, um, and uh, so everything we, we're doing is virtual. Yeah. So we've been doing a lot, you know, uh, virtual programming. Um, you can go to our website nytf.org and and check it out. We've got uh, at, at this point, I think we've got close to eighty programs on there. Um, but one fun thing I did was starting in. I've been teaching every once in a while. I'll teach a, a little Yiddish conversation class. Again, it just those you know skills of being in front of students is is a lot like stand-up. It really kind of fills that same spot. Even if the material can be a little bit drier at times, you can certainly find the the, the moments of levity that make it worthwhile. So I had taught a couple of uh, short uh, Yiddish courses, maybe like somewhere between like six and seven uh, classes, just con what we call conversation classes. And the, the students are always incredibly interesting. Uh, they're, they're, they're a lot of fun. Um, they're, you know, I, I, I'm the boring guy in the, in the room. Uh, they just kind of, you know, take over. Everybody wants to talk about, you know, <laughs> their, their own past uh, in these classes. They're mostly, they're, they're older people, but not exclusively. You know, they're the weird kind of people who want to learn Yiddish. So back in, in the spring, one of our staff members was saying that there were they were getting a lot of requests from the audience. They wanted to to learn Yiddish. They were enjoying the programs. And they all had subtitles, but they wanted to, to learn the language. And would I do online classes? And I actually did in the in the early spring for some private students, I did some Zoom classes. And it was, it was fine. It was not quite as engaging as being in the room at the same time because in zoom you know it, it automatically mutes your microphone and only one person can talk at a time so we didn't have that really like lively discussion of people kind of like talking over each other and you know that that kind of dynamic which was actually quite a quite a blast so i finally relented and said okay i'll do these classes but i don't want them to be live Zoom classes. Uh, I'll pre-record them. So we created this show called 15 Minute Yiddish, more or less, because the, the episodes, sometimes they're 14 minutes, sometimes they're 20 minutes. And I decided that I would That's just play fun. all of the students. So me as me <laughs> is the is the boring, dry guy. Um, but the students are kind of like the fantasy of who would be taking this class. So there's an old school Borscht Belt stand-up comic. Uh, there's an, uh, a, an elderly tired lady who used to be a, a, an air traffic controller. There's a teenage boy. There's a, a woman who is just a, a professional famous person, but nobody's sure what she's famous for. And she's always in exotic locales. So throughout the summer, she was in, uh, where was she? She was in, in Italy on the you know the Italian Riviera. Now she's in now she's in Tahiti. Uh, basically, I just have a, a green screen. <laughs> Give her good back backgrounds. Uh, there's a guy named Wayne, just Wayne, who he, he just sits on a park bench and didn't have anything better to do, so he takes the class. Um, there's a Jewish studies professor from the University of Alaska. <laughs> so I let the students kind of like take over the. Uh, the chatter, and that's what that's what makes it entertainment entertaining enough to to sit through a uh, a language uh, instruction lesson. 
No, definitely. It definitely works. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I would recommend if anybody has any kind of interest in just, just learning something, just learning something, a little bit about Yiddish, uh, definitely check out Matt's YouTube show. Uh, uh, National Yiddish the, Theater uh, Folk Center, on? NYTF. You can also uh, view it on our website, nytf.org. Um, new episodes come out. We're in season two now. New episodes come out at 1 p.m. on Tuesdays. And not every week, but most weeks, I'll do a live chat during the uh, uh, the, the premiere when the, uh, when the episode drops. That's awesome. Well, hopefully we can bring some folks to the, the channel because it is a lot of fun. And if you'd like anybody out there would like to talk to me, you can hit me on Twitter at Janky Old Broke Hobo Spider Man at Jonathan Blade. Thanks for listening. <laughs>